Well, as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke, uh, what we're going to be looking at today in Luke chapter 6, we're going to be, Luke is going to be discussing uh, a little bit about how sometimes our religion, our, our approach to God, our faith in God can become more about keeping rules and laws than it is about really having a, an experience of God's presence in a real life living relationship with Him. And so to just get things going today, uh, before I start talking, uh, I've invited Julie Miller to come. And uh, Julie, we're going to hear a little bit of her story this morning. So would you welcome Julie as she comes today? Hi, Julie. <laughs> there we go, Julie. Thank you. Have a seat. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Julie, uh, just three questions for Julie this morning. Uh, first... Would you share just a little bit of your journey with us, how you came to have faith in Christ? Um, yeah, I, I grew up in a church. Um, uh, religion and church was a very high priority in my family's life. Um, we went to church just about every Sunday, did all the activities. Um, we had Sunday school and youth group, lock-ins, mission trips, all of that. We did it. Um, I grew up in a very active church. We had... Um, you know, we had a lot going on. They really placed a high emphasis on serving other people. Uh, so it felt like I had, you know, a pretty basic understanding of that Jesus loved me, that he died for my sins. Um, but the focus was more on, you know, living a moral life, um, serving other people, just generally being a good person. So, you know, thinking back, I feel like, you know, I had a pretty good foundation of a life with Christ, but it was just missing a lot of pieces. You know, I didn't know what grace was. I didn't know that God wanted a relationship with me. Um, I didn't even know that he wanted to be part of my daily life. Um, you know, so I, I remember seeing kind of a handful of people that seemed to have more of a genuine faith. Um, and, you know, I, I could pinpoint it that they had something different, but I didn't know what it was. Uh, I didn't know how to get that. So, my brother was actually one of those people. When he went away to college, he really found the Lord. He got involved in Campus Crusade at Illinois State. And so, um, you know, I could see a change in him. I could see that in his life. But, again, I didn't really know how to get it. So uh, then when it was time for me to go to school, uh, I was about ready to leave for college. And my brother called me the night before I was supposed to leave. And he said, can I give you a piece of advice? And I said, sure. And he said, um, get involved in a college ministry. And I said, yeah, okay. I, I didn't really have any intention of doing that if it required any effort on my part. <laughs> um, I definitely wasn't going to put myself out there. So it was, my dad took me to school. We moved into the dorms, and um, I was getting settled and starting to feel really nervous. I was three hours from home, and I didn't know anybody. And um, my dad was getting ready to leave, and right then... Um, the first girl on my floor who walked up to me within five minutes of our first conversation invited me to church and um, also told me about how this church had this really thriving college ministry. So we went that first Thursday night to the ministry event, and um, I don't know, it was just like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Um, the pastor presented the gospel in a way I hadn't heard it, and um, there were about 700 students in that first event, um, choosing to be there, choosing to be there worshiping Jesus rather than going downtown, which is just about what everybody else did. 
on a Thursday night in Iowa <laughs> City. Um, so it was just a really powerful experience. I knew in that moment I was where I was supposed to be. Um, and then because the ministry was so large, they had a lot of small groups, so I got involved in a small group and um, found a close group of friends where we were uh, growing together, studying the Bible together, and all of that. Um, and we, um, and then they also had a freshman group, which Pastor Jim, you wanted me to mention that I met Mike in the <laughs> I wanted to get that group. in there. I wanted that to know how you guys met. Mentioned. Right, okay. Um, and um, so anyway, that first year of college was just really life-changing for me. Um, it was, you know, it was kind of where all those pieces were coming together, where the foundation had been laid at my home church, but it was pretty based on religion and my efforts. Um, and whereas here I was really experiencing God's grace and what it was to actually yeah. walk with him. All right, that's great. And then since uh, knowing Christ, uh, what, how would you say he has made differences in your life, Julie? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I feel like sometimes it's hard, to, it's hard to think of what it's like to not know him when you've been walking with him for a while. Um, but the main thing that came to mind for me was that we have so much hope. Um, we have hope in our... We have hope in our daily lives. We have hope in our calling from him, even in our trials. Um, you know, we have hope because of the peace he gives us and the assurance of our salvation. And, um, I've, you know, I've been able to lead Grief Share here for almost right. three years. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I've been, become so aware of how following God gives us hope, even in the midst of suffering. Um, we don't. It doesn't mean we hurt less. It doesn't mean the pain goes away or the stressors that go along with that go away. But it means that we still have reason to yeah. hope. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, we have a Savior who loves us and understands our grief. And he can heal us and even turn our most terrible circumstances into something good. So great. there's a lot of reason to hope yeah. in that. Okay. That's great. And then just one question more. Um, mm -hmm. What opportunities has Christ given you to use your gifts in serving him? Um, well, like I said, because, because of the background I had with a church that was really focused on helping other people, um, my, my heart has always kind of been for walking with the hurting or companioning with, with people who are in need. So, um, so I became a social worker and um, did hospice for a while mm -hmm. and you know, was able to walk with people in the midst of end-of-life issues and in the midst of grief and be an emotional support and provide counseling in that. So even though I don't do that in a professional setting anymore, um, you know, even parenting, I stay home with my kids, mm -hmm. even parenting requires mm -hmm. those gifts to be used. Um, like I said, I've, I lead grief share, so I've been able to, to companion with people in that time. And, um, and you know, in, even just visiting people in the church who've been in nursing homes or are not able to get out of their houses as easily because mm -hmm. they're not doing well, you know, I've been able to go and visit and, great, and great. hopefully use those gifts. All right. And Julie, I know that Julie's been uh, extremely uh, caring and active in, in the ministries of the church, and we're just so grateful for that. Thank you for coming and sharing a little bit of your story with us today. Let's express that gratitude again. Thanks, Julie.
Today, uh, sixth chapter of the book of Luke, uh, sort of giving it this title, Follow Me, specifically around the ideas of true obedience, what that means. I think that's what Luke is going to be explaining here today. And Luke o- opens this sixth chapter w- showing us two confrontations between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. They were called the Pharisees. And the, the thing the Pharisees were doing, they knew the scriptures really, really well. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But they were misusing the scriptures, the very word of God, to shame people into obedience. And you know, shame has a lot of power in it. Shame can, can get control over people. And the Pharisees were using this holy word of God as an instrument of shame to keep, uh, to, to control people and to try to shame them into obeying God. Uh, it would sort of be like this, to illustrate it. It would be like a parent who says to a child, imagine a child, as soon as they're old enough to talk, is that a couple years old, they, get, they can get their first words down, enough to understand. And a parent sits down with that child and says, if you ever want me to love you, If you ever expect to please me, if you ever want me to accept you, then here are the rules. Keep those rules and you can earn my my pleasure and earn my love. And then the parent hands them this huge book of rules that no one could ever possibly keep, but because every child wants to receive the love of their parents and wants to please their parents, the child begins to try to live up to all of these rules but ends up instead just falling into shame after shame after shame because they can never measure up. When all they ever wanted, the thing they're striving for, was to hear their parents say, son, daughter, I love you. I accept you. I am so very glad that you're my son. I'm so very glad that you're my daughter. But they never, ever get it because it's all built around rules. Well, this is how the Pharisees were misrepresenting the God of the Scriptures as a a rule keeper and a rule giver. The, The Pharisees were teaching the people, if you ever want God to love you, if you want to ever be able to please God, and to be on God's good side so he will bless you, then here is the way you can do it. Now, I want to illustrate this this morning. So I've asked Jacob if he would come on up here and help me out today. Jacob, come on up. Yep, hey. Now, I'm going to, Jacob, turn around and face everybody. All right. Now, here's here's what the Pharisees did. Uh, they, the scriptures were involved, so I'm going to hand the Bible, and you're going to hold that with both hands, Jacob, okay? So the, the scriptures were there, the Old Testament part of the scriptures, the first part of the Bible, okay? But the Pharisees came along, and then they began to pile on rules, books of rules on top of the Bible. You okay, Jacob? Still all right? Let me know when it gets painful. 
One more. <laughs> All right, now, does that feel pretty heavy? Okay, <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, now, Jacob, just to help me make this point, would you stand here the rest of the sermon? Hold those books, okay? All right. Now, that would be a stress. That would be tough on Jacob to do that for the next, well, I'm not going to say how long, okay? But <laughs> he might end up dropping these things. Pretty soon his arms are going to get tired. He's going to say, look, I just can't do this anymore. Okay, well, okay, Jacob, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relieve you here, okay? All right, whoops. I emptied my bookcase today. Here we go. All right, thanks, Jacob. Well, that's a little bit of a picture of what the Pharisees were doing. Uh, they were burying the scriptures under layers and layers and layers and layers of religious rules. Uh, and, and really what it, what it led the people into was they couldn't keep them. And it led them into shame. And it led them to, to not even want to, to think about God, but to run away from God because he's a God that, that we can't please. We can never get close to him. Uh, and you know, sadly, well, let, me, let me say this before I go there. But the thing is, when they buried the scriptures, when you read the Old Testament, the heart of the Old Testament, and Jesus restated this in the New Testament, what, what's, what's the essence of the entire Bible? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is what God wants with people. This is what he wants from people. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. That's what God's always been after. That's what he wants. But it was so obscured by, oh, hey, no, God just wants you to keep the rules. And you know what? Sad thing is, there's sometimes churches that do the same thing and obscure the word of God by just adding on all these kinds of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and all these kinds of things. And pretty soon, you know, uh, there's, a, there's an author by the name of Philip Yancey, and I remember reading an article that he wrote in Christianity Today a few years ago, and he titled it, you know, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, I'm a Teenage Werewolf, okay, from way, way back. Michael Landon, I think, okay. Anyway, but uh, I'm not really advocating the movie either, so. But anyway... <laughs> He wrote, he titled his, his article, I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. <laughs> he grew up in a, in, a, in a church that was just filled with rules and judgment and absent of relationship, absent of the sense that God is a God of love. So that's what, what, that's what Luke is going to be talking about here. So many of those religious rules that the Pharisees formed were formed around the Sabbath day. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, number four is, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That all goes back to the book of Genesis. God created the earth in the first six days of creation, and then it says, on the seventh day, he rested. And he, took, he looked back at all those days of labor, and the Sabbath day was just, it was, he proclaimed it not only for himself, but then it was put into the, into the Ten Commandments that one out of seven days should be a day when 
hey, we, we step back from the work week, and we take a breath, and we fill, let the tanks fill back in, and we rest, and we laugh, and we have a great time, and, and we, at the center of that Sabbath day, we just put a dime to, to gather together and worship God. That's what, that's, but, but here's what the Pharisees had done with, with the Sabbath day. They had, had added so many rules to how to keep the Sabbath day that it became more of a stress than the six days of the work week. For instance, one of those rules was that you could only walk 2,000 cubits on a Sabbath day. That's two-thirds of a mile. That's, you, could, you could not walk any further than two-thirds of a mile. And if you walked more than two-thirds of a mile, it was considered work. So therefore, you were violating the Sabbath day. So it's on this very point that Luke opens up chapter 6. He's going to show us two clashes that Jesus had with the religious leaders, both of them on two different Sabbath days. Verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to summarize these because we don't have time to read all these verses. Here's the summary of verses 1 through 5. On the Sabbath day, Jesus and the 12 are walking through a field of grain. And as they did, the disciples began to pick some of the grain and to snack on it as they were walking. They broke two Sabbath day rules right there. One, they were probably walking more than two-thirds of a mile. And number two, they were working because they were picking grain and snacking on it. Now, The Pharisees, by now, were constantly keeping Jesus under surveillance to try to catch him in breaking the laws so they could discredit him. They even wanted to shame Jesus and and discredit him. Well, they, they come to Jesus and say, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath day? But then Jesus digs way down under all their layers of rules, and he comes back to the Word of God back specifically to 1 Samuel chapter 21, and he reminds the Pharisees of something they had forgotten. He tells them about the time when King David was with his men. He was running for his life from a very jealous, enraged King Saul who was out to kill him. This was a life and death situation. And so what David did was he went to the priest of Nob, where the the worship tent, the tabernacle was, that had been set up as a place to worship God. And when he went there and explained the situation, uh, the priest ended up taking the holy bread, called the bread of the presence, the bread that had been prayed over and dedicated to God and put in the holy place inside inside the tabernacle. Uh, The priest went and got that bread, and he brought it out and gave it to David and his men. Now, in other words, what Jesus was helping them to remember was this, that behind the law, under normal circumstances, nobody but a priest was ever, ever, ever to touch that bread or to eat that bread. But in this case, the God who who cares about the well-being of people, and in this extreme emergency, there was a greater law of God that came into play, and we call that the law of love. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit later. But he was just helping, to, he was helping the Pharisees to remember what the heart of this word of God is all about. And then Jesus made a statement that really shocked the Pharisees. 
He said, the son of man, and now that title that Jesus took to himself means, I'm the promised Messiah. I am the promised Savior that God would send into the world. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And we know from earlier in Luke that he was God in human flesh. Well, anyhow, this is what Jesus says. The son of man, that is me, is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what is Jesus saying there? He's saying to the Pharisees this. Don't try to tell me about your Sabbath day rules because you're talking to the very one who set the Sabbath day in place. I am the God, the Lord of the Sabbath. It was my idea to begin with. And Matthew and Mark, they record in their uh, treatments of this passage, they add, Jesus added this statement. He says, people were not made for the Sabbath, for the sake of the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for the sake and the well-being of people. I didn't create the Sabbath to be a day of stress in keeping impossible rules, but I've created the Sabbath day for people to enjoy and rest and, re- and laugh and reflect and, and take a break from work and come together to worship and do it all remembering me. So that's the first encounter. That's the flourish, first in- clash of love with rules. Then in verse number 6 through 11, Luke shows us on another Sabbath day, another, another confrontation. This time, Jesus was in one of the synagogues, and they were having a service that day, a worship service. There was a man present with a shriveled arm, and again, the religious uh, leaders the, who were surveilling Jesus, spying on him, watching him to see if he would break any of the rules. Now, every Sabbath, every Sabbath, or every synagogue had its order of worship, its order of service, uh, they were there to specifically see what Jesus was going to do there that day, if they could catch him in something. Well, Jesus knew their thoughts. And so uh, the man with the shriveled hand, during the middle of the service somewhere, Jesus broke in and he healed this man. He told him, stretch out your hand. As he did, the man's arm was completely healed. Now, here was the reaction of the, the Pharisees. They were infuriated that Jesus healed this man. They didn't even, they cared, they cared nothing for this man. He had just been healed, miraculously. What they cared about was Jesus had worked. He had disturbed the service. He had broken things up that day. They cared more for their rules than they cared about people. And that's a very, very obvious situation like that, but that's something I think that God wants us always to remember as we live our Christian lives, that God cares about people far more than he cares about our religious rules and our programs and our activities. At the heart of it all is a concern for people. Now, it also says in verse 11 that the, the, the Pharisees were furious and began to plot a way to get rid of Jesus. So the shadow of the cross for the first time is appearing in the minds of the Pharisees now. We need to get rid of this guy. And the rest, uh, we're going to see throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke how the Pharisees are always sort of a sub-theme. They're always in the background wanting to get rid of this, this Christ who's breaking up all the religious rules. Now, what this boils down to, and we're going to apply this in just a second, what this all boils down to is that the Pharisees were trying to impose obedience by shame. 
And they even tried to impose obedience by shame upon Jesus himself. But again, they didn't know that they were facing God himself in Jesus Christ. And so can you picture this? They were trying to use God's word against the very God who wrote that word when they were confronting Jesus. But Jesus came to turn that all around and upside down, turn it on its heads. Now, in verses 12 to 16, Jesus, he, after a night of prayer, he officially announces his core of 12 apostles, the first band of leaders who would begin to announce this new kingdom of God and a new way of living that he was bringing into the world. And then in verses 17 through 45, most of the rest of the chapter, what Jesus does is he begins to lay out by teaching this new law for living, uh, this new way, uh, this new kingdom that he's inviting every person to come into now that is going to lift us way beyond living by rules of shame and judgment and the things they have been used to. So I'm going to just focus on a few of those verses right now. Verses 27 through 36. Uh, now, so here's Jesus. He's, he's teaching what the Word of God, the kind of life the Word of God really calls us to live, okay? Here's his summation of that in verses 20. Okay, we begin verse 27 and 28. He says this, But to you who are willing to listen, I say, I'm just going to stop with the first next word, I say love. Okay. So right away, Jesus is saying that the foundation of this new way of living, it's love. But then he says this, who? Who do we love? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. And then we come to verses 29 and 30. These are probably the most misunderstood and misapplied verses of anything Jesus said right here. This is what he says. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. Now, it sounds like Jesus is saying here that to live in love means that you never stand up against offenses, you never stand up against evil, you never stand up against abuse, you never speak up, you never defend yourself or defend others. Just become a human punching bag and just get trampled on. That sounds, that would be what it sounds like Jesus is saying right there. I want to I sh- I bring this into balance here a little bit this morning. First of all, we know that that is not what Jesus is saying because in the very conversation in which he is saying this, he is standing up. He's standing up very strongly face to face with the Pharisees who were bringing offense and abuse. Jesus was being a voice for the victims of injustice in in what he was saying in this statement. So Jesus certainly doesn't mean 
that there's never a time to stand up and speak and to confront evil and to deal with it. He's not saying that we just roll over. Now, of course, if we took this passage and, and carried it out to ridiculous extremes, well, that would mean we'd have to dismantle all of our police forces. We'd have to dismantle our military. If, if Jesus is saying it's never, it's, the law of love is never stand up and defend, but just let evil roll over you and crush you, okay, that's not what Jesus is saying. You know, there was one time when Jesus said, um, trying to make a point, he said, if your eye offends you, or if your arm offends you, what he was trying to say was, if you're using your eyes for sinful purposes, if you're using your eyes for lustful reasons, if you're using your hands to do sinful things, well, reach up and take a hold of your eye and pull it out of your head. Another time he said, take a, take a hatchet and cut your, cut your arm off, okay? Well, do, no, one, no one takes Jesus literally there. He, that isn't what he's talking about. He's making a point by, by stating it in graphic language. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. So, uh, the, he, he, and, and let me, okay, let me, what is the principle that Jesus is stating right here about dealing with offenses and abuses that come against us in life? He's saying this basically, don't respond to those who abuse you, who offend you, by abusing them back, by retaliating and having vengeance in your heart and hatred toward those people. Because that's exactly how the world operates and that is what is destroying this planet. Because it's hate for hate, bitter for bitter. You strike me, I'm going to punch you. It's hatred. It's aggression against one another. If you aggress against me, then I'm going to give you double what you poured out on me. Jesus is breaking that up. He's simply saying that we, we need to learn how to respond to those who abuse us. We need to have the proper loving response to that person. Uh, I'm going to illustrate that in just a second. But he says, I'm calling you to a new and revolutionary kind of way to live. To respond like God responds so that the influence of his power, his kingdom, can begin to bring change and healing to our world. Jesus is saying this, he's, he's, illustra he, he's explaining what he has just said in verses 32. Let me read this. If you love only those who love you, if, you're only, if you only love people that are nice to you, why should you get any credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. So he repeats it. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to those without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be great, and you will be truly acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. So, learning to respond to our world with the appropriate response of love in each given situation. Uh, Jesus is not here giving rules for how we handle every situation. He's giving us a principle by which we live and let the Holy Spirit guide us in how to apply that in certain situations. For instance, there are times when we are offended when responding with silence, not saying a word is the very best way to express love. Let me give you one example. Luke chapter 22, verse 61, 
tells us about that night when um, Peter miserably failed Jesus. He just, he was like the chief of the disciples, but he, he, uh, he denied Jesus three times. And, and Luke is the only one of the gospel writers that makes the statement that after the denial, after the third denial, Jesus looked at Peter. Their eyes, their eyes connected. They saw each other. What did Jesus do? Did he run over and, you know, and get down on Peter? Did he? No, all Jesus did was look at him. And what did Peter do? Well, he went out and he wept bitterly. <laughs> Sometimes it's silence and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to a person that may have hurt us or offended us. Let the Holy Spirit do his thing. And you know what? The Holy Spirit can bring that person to a place of apology and forgiveness, just like he did with Peter. Sometimes that's the best thing. We need to follow the Holy Spirit in these things. But there are also times when we are offended that it's time to stand up and speak. It's time to expose the offense. It's time to face it and deal with it. And that's what, Peter's, that's what Jesus is doing right here in this passage with the, with the Pharisees. He's standing up. They're abusing. He's saying, hey, this is not right. Uh, that's tough love. Now, did Jesus hate the Pharisees? No, he loved them. He loved those Pharisees. That's why he was tough. He stood up to them, but he did it in love. And, the res- and, and, and what was the result of that? Well, some of those Pharisees, one, one we know for sure, Nicodemus, eventually, Jesus got through to him. Jesus got through to some of those Pharisees simply because he stood up and spoke truth to them. Now, it requires great strength, more strength than we humans have to respond to offenses and abuses with without hatred and anger and retaliation rising up and wanting to just dish it right back. Because that's our natural, that's, our, that's what we want to do when we're offended. And I'm, and I'm talking, I know, I'm talking very sensitively in this room this morning because I know there are people in this, in this room that have experienced some horrible injustices and hurt at the hands of other people. I know that. So I'm not just throwing out some principle here that is like the Pharisees. No, no. Jesus is talking about how we deal with even the worst and most horrible offenses in our life, the most serious abuse. Is, no, so again, let me make it clear. Does Jesus mean just deny the hurt, ignore it, pretend it didn't happen, bury it? He doesn't mean that at all. What he does mean, well, let me say this as, I talk, as we talk about that. Let me, let me just get plain here. If there's a person who's being physically abused, verbally abused, emotionally abused, or sexually abused, or any other kind of abused, that's a situation that calls for acting, facing it, dealing with it, speaking up taking action because if you allow an abuser to keep abusing you you're not helping yourself or that person you're simply reinforcing 
the abusiveness in that other individual by allowing yourself to continue to be that target. God doesn't want that. Uh, So there are times to break the silence, step up, and deal with it. But when we deal with that, that's how we deal with it, the attitude, that's what Jesus is getting at here. So he's saying that responding with hatred and the desire to hurt and abuse the person who's hurt you, all that's going to do is further destroy you because it it causes you to hang on to hatred and hang on to bitterness and hang on to all of those unhealthy things that, that turn a person into an abuser in the first place. So Jesus is talking here about breaking the cycle of hatred that leads to broken relationships, prejudices, barriers between people. He's calling to himself people who will have the courage and the power to break the law of hatred with the law of love. Now, how do we do that? Well, in verses 46 through 49, Jesus gives us the one and only foundation upon which we can build a life of love. He gives, us, it, it gives, it, to a, gives it to us in a parable, um, how we can live in this turbulent, evil world. And he says there were two guys who built, each built a house. And the house represents the building of your life. Uh, he says that there's one, one of the persons built their house upon the rock. And this is the person who hears the word, who really gets it, who understands it, and then allows it to take shape in their life and lead them to live a life of love, loving others, reacting toward others with God's grace. And the person that does that, he says, when the floods and the torrents and the rain and the wind, all that represent all of the evil and the hurt and the injustices, and the losses of this world, when those come sweeping in upon that person, they're going to stand because they have built their life on the foundation of knowing Christ and then allowing his love to be the guiding basic principle, the guiding rule in their day-by-day living. But the person who tries to build their house, their life, on their own or using their own rules is, Jesus says here, is building without any foundation underneath their life at all. And so when the storms come and when the abuses and and the sorrows and the despairs of life come, there's nothing underneath that person to keep their life from crashing. The only one who can give you the strength to live the life of love is Jesus Christ. And that is why he came into this broken, messed up world. And then he eventually became the greatest demonstration of that love we could imagine because he went to the cross. There he, it was one of those situations there where he didn't say anything from the cross, basically except, well, he said, I'm thirsty. At one point, they gave him vinegar to drink. And then he said, Father, forgive them because they they don't know what they're doing. Uh, 
Jesus offered forgiveness. He showed love, unimaginable love, the sinless God who had never sinned, allowing, yet staying there and bearing our sins along with all the hatred of the people that was, be, that was being poured out upon them there. That's the great demonstration. Uh, he died so that all of us would have a way of forgiveness to come into this kingdom that's all about relationships, first with him and then with one another, and to live with his love in the face of evil. So Jesus invites us to come to him with our sins, our failures, our wounds, no matter how big or how small they might be, to come to him repenting and saying, Lord, forgive me. And you know what? He even extends that to, I mean, to people that have been on the abusing end of things in this world. His grace goes that far. Uh, He will come into your life. He will begin to restore you and give you his own strength to live this profound love in his kingdom. We don't have the strength in ourselves to do that. He gives us that strength in this world of offenses. So what do we do with this this morning? Well, number one, um, have you come personally to Jesus Christ? Julie was saying a little bit ago there that she had gone to church for years and years and heard a lot of good things and a lot of great Bible stories, and uh, she'd heard about the cross, and she'd heard about God and, and all that stuff. But it, it had come across more to her as just, well, this is a good moral way to live. You know, it's just religion. She had never had the experience of knowing him personally. And that's, what we're, that's where we all need to come. And, and that means we, we just humble ourselves before Christ and we say, Lord, I believe that you are who you said you are. I believe you're the Lord of the Sabbath. I believe you're the creator of the universe. But you're also my Savior who died for me. And I thank you for that, and I receive you into my life. When we pray that prayer, take that step and, and come to him. Christ forgives us of our sins. Something brand new happens. He enters in to live within our life. And then he shares with us the power of his own life, the power of his own love, so that we can begin to live in his kingdom in, with, in a brand new way. That's the first thing we need to do, is to come to him. And then if we're followers of Jesus, I believe we simply need to be constantly recommitting ourselves to live this life of love, uh, surrendering ourselves to Christ so that we can keep loving people foremost, more than rules and all those other things, that we love people. Sometimes in our in our you know, society now, in our Christian circles, we'll talk about the various issues in our world. There's the race issue, there's the gay issue, there's the transen- transgender issue, there's all of these issues. There's the poverty issue, all those things. But you know what? They are issues for sure, but they're more than issues. They're people, <laughs> okay? And that's, that's where we need to be care. We need to care about the people that are suffering in these issues. Number three, I spoke about shame and abuse a few moments ago, and uh, if you are experiencing abuse on either side of the abuse equation, if you are the one being abused, or if you are the abuser, 
I think the Lord is saying, calling, uh, calling you, if you're being abused, to take a step forward into a safe place with safe people that can begin to break that cycle in your life and, and set you free and, 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 and protect you from it. If you are the abuser, Jesus is calling you to come to him too because he has grace for you. He can change. Paul was an abuser for a while. He was throwing innocent people in jail and even participating in their murder. What did God do in Paul's life? He can do that in, in anyone's life. So we need to come to him. and not. But what, what prevents both people on both sides of that equation from ever taking that step? It's what we're talking about today, shame. So we conceal and hide. Worst thing we can do. Come to Christ. So, so how would I do that practically? Well, you might go and talk with one of the pastors here in the church about that. It'd be the first step in bringing it into light. Or you might talk to, your, to a small group leader. Uh, you might find a safe person, another Christian that you know, that you could go and share this. Talk, talk about it. That's the kind of gospel. That's, the, that's living in the new kingdom, the new kingdom that brings light and chases away the darkness. Um, so, let's, let's just take whatever, whatever God's speaking to us today, let's be sure that we respond to it in that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you today for your presence, your love, your goodness, and Lord, now we surrender ourselves to you. We thank you, Lord, that you have come to bring a new way, a new kingdom. I pray, Lord, that whatever parts of this message were meant to touch whoever, Lord, I pray that your spirit will bring that to bear upon each of our hearts today, Lord, because we take your call seriously. We want to respond. We want to be the people in this world, Lord, that can show the love of Christ in all of its dimensions so that, they, so that your grace and healing and salvation can flow through, the, through us, Lord. And we give you praise for it, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.